All right, guys, my name is uh, Nick Anderson. I do Hawkeye and Wartburg ministry with Salt Company. That doesn't mean I don't love you and I students, though. That's where, that's where I went to school. So, guys, I got a real treat for all of you right now. You want to hear what it is? All right, so I, have, I, I went like Facebook deep diving on myself because I know you all would appreciate that. So I've got three pictures for you guys that I think are really funny. So take a look up here at the first one. All right, that is me, little Nick Anderson in the Adidas tank top. How good is that? Yeah, yeah. All right, next one. Look at me. All right, if you guys look closely, that's, I, I'm a drummer. That says, stick with Jesus. <laughs> it's two drumsticks into the shape of a cross. Oh, man. All right, next one. This one's my favorite. Look at that. All right, that's me in the classic musical Grease. I played Kinnicky, and it was a good time. I'm not apologizing for being, invo being involved in musicals. It was a lot of fun. So... I uh, hope those made you guys laugh. Uh, honestly, has really not a whole lot to do with what I'm going to talk about, but I thought you'd enjoy them anyway. So um, I guess it does have a little bit to do with it because in those pictures, there's actually, even though they're funny, there's a, there's a little bit of like an underlying like background thing that's going on that maybe is a little bit harder for you guys to see. So in every one of those pictures, I'm actually... Let me put it this way. So in that first picture, I'm with a, a bunch of friends as a young kid, and what is hard to see is I actually struggled a lot with feeling like I needed to fit in growing up. Can anybody relate? In the second picture, that was, a, that was the picture of me with the Stick With Jesus shirt, um, and I was actually standing next to my older cousin. I always looked up to him. I always wanted to, to have him think that I was really cool. I always wanted to impress him, and oftentimes that made me be somebody that I wasn't. Then in the third picture, I, uh, I'm involved in, in a musical, but man, in high school, I threw myself at every single activity, music, sports, mock trial, music, uh, musicals, uh, NHS, National Honor Society, because I wanted to be viewed as the all-around kid and be really impressive to a bunch of different friend groups. So the theme in all of those things is I was, man, I just really wanted the approval of other people. And if you boil that down, what I was really searching for was something called satisfaction. Satisfaction. And that right there, that, that approval of others, it wasn't even the like the main battleground in my search for satisfaction growing up. The main battleground for me was dating relationships. What mattered to me most in high school and in my later college years, dating relationships. I so badly wanted to be in one, constantly. And then I, I had this idea that once I got a girlfriend, then I would truly be happy. Then, then that search for satisfaction would go away. And I threw myself at this. I mean, it took over my thoughts. Uh, I was spending a ton of money just trying to, like, be sweet on a crush. Uh, it was, <laughs> I was constantly talking about girls, and it even affected my prayer life. So I, have you all ever done this thing where it's like, man, God, if you just give me this one thing, I will never ask you for anything again. That's what, I was doing some, some negotiating with God. God, if you give me a girlfriend, I will be truly happy, and I will never ask you for anything Again, it sounds silly, but here's my guess. Each and every one of you is also searching for satisfaction 
in one way or another, each one of you is also searching for satisfaction. The story continues for me, though. Um, I ended up dating four girls in three years between like my senior year of high school and college. I am not the kind of guy that I want my daughters to date one day, okay? So I, I put girls through breakups I was broken up with, but time after time in my search for satisfaction as I dated one girl after another, it just, it wasn't working. I wasn't finding true satisfaction. And so later on, I had come to know Christ, was maturing a lot, and I decided to give dating another try. And I got into this relationship, um, and we were dating for 11 or 11 months, about a year, uh, and I thought I was going to propose to this girl, and then she ended things out of nowhere. And I don't care who you are, breakups are tough, no matter if you've dated for a little while or a long time, no matter who it is, breakups are tough, but guys, it was really sad. Like, I was way too devastated for way too long, and even as a Christian, it was becoming apparent that, man, that search for satisfaction really hadn't gone away, at least looking for it in that place. And so, guys, I don't know what it is for you, but I know that you're looking for satisfaction too. So fill in this blank. If I just had this, then I would be truly happy. If this one thing fell into place, I'd finally be content and wouldn't want anything else. If I land this internship, I'd be truly happy. If I date this person, I'd be truly happy. If this candidate wins the election, I'd be truly happy if I finally got invited to hang out in this particular SALT friend group, then I'd be truly happy. SALT company, this is just what's true. You have a God-sized and a God-shaped hole in your heart. You have a God-sized and a God-shaped hole in your heart. And tonight we're gonna be in Isaiah 55 and God is going to show us through Isaiah 55 what he has done about that God-sized and God-shaped hole in our hearts. So there's four sections to this passage, and, it's, and we're, it's, they're going to provide answers to four different questions. So the first question, what is God offering? The second question, how do we accept his offer? Third question, why should we accept his offer? And question four, what does his accepting his offer change about us. So flip open to Isaiah 55. I'm going to read this for us. First five verses. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David. Since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, so, so you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you. For the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. So first thought here, guys, if you've been coming to SALT the past couple weeks, especially last week, we've talked about some pretty heavy stuff like idolatry, God's wrath, God's judgment. And Stephen showed us last, the, last week that while some of us uh, might have a problem with the fact that, it, that God judges and has wrath, each and every one of us actually have an internal desire within us 
to see God pour out justice on horrible, horrible things around us like the Holocaust or the genocide that's happening right now and has been happening for a long time in Sudan. And uh, I hope none of you grow up to be mass murderers, but uh, you have to know that all of us are sinners. All of us contribute to the brokenness in this world. All of us have the capacity to do really, really horrible things, and all of us are deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And so, as we move to Isaiah 55, it's incredible to me that God would come to us with an offer like this. Even though we mock and dishonor and disobey and defame and betray and rebel, I could go on and on, and rebel against God, even though we should have no bargaining chips, no excuses, and no case, God shows compassion. He reaches out his hand and he says this word that we are going to see repeated time and time again in Isaiah 55, come. Come to who? Come where? Come to me. So there's your first answer to that first question. What is God offering? Himself. He's saying, come to the one who can ultimately quench that thirst for satisfaction. Come to the one who doesn't require that you buy your way in. Come to the one that can truly satisfy your hunger. And then he says something else, and we're gonna, we're gonna spend a little bit of time on this question because it's important. He, God asks almost incred, incredulously, like he can't even believe it, why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what doesn't satisfy you? God knows that he alone fills that God-sized gap in your heart. And he knows that we are very good at looking for other things to fill it. There's a, there's a book in your Bibles in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. You don't have to turn there. Um, but it's one of my favorites. The main character is this guy named King Solomon. He's the son of King David, who's the guy that slayed Goliath. And he's also the same David that uh, we saw in verse 3 here. So... Kind of the, the big picture of the, the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Uh, Solomon has one goal, one mission, and that's to figure out what will truly satisfy him. So just listen to this as I read this for us. Solomon says this in chapter two. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. Get this. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. So Solomon's kind of a show-off here, right? He's like, yep, you looked for it, I did it. He's amassed this massive fortune, and he's not going to spare a single expense as he's on this hunt for what is going to truly satisfy him. Now, if y'all would just look at me and, and listen very carefully, Solomon had more money than you will ever have. Solomon had more homes, more gardens, more beautiful scenery, 
than you will ever have. Solomon had better food than you will ever eat. He took better vacations than you will ever take. And fellas, really listen to this one. Women too, but especially the fellas. Solomon had something like 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a fancy word for prostitutes. He had more relationships and more sex with more women than you will ever have. Solomon had more political power than you will ever have. He had more military conquests than you will ever have. He had more fun parties. He had more friends. He had more status. He had more success than you will ever have. And yet this is what he says at the end of all of this. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered that I had, what I had, all that I had accomplished and all that I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing. Guys, men wanted to be Solomon and women wanted to be with Solomon. And yet Solomon says it is meaningless. All of it is meaningless. You guys know who Jim Carrey is? I met him once, fun fact about me, but Jim Carrey once said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady was once, and you guys know who Tom Brady is, I assume most of you, kind of a household name by now. Tom Brady was interviewed on 60 Minutes after winning his third Super Bowl ring. And he asked this question, man, to the interviewer, man, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? You guys get in the picture? Man, let, let Solomon, let Jim Carrey, let Tom Brady do the long, agonizing work for you. We're spending all of this time and all of these resources searching for something that is gonna elude us. And sure, maybe something will bring you like satisfaction for a little while, but here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna get tired of that, then you're gonna start looking for something else, and then you're gonna run to that, and you're gonna try that for a little bit, and then ultimately that's going to disappoint you too. Nothing in creation will truly satisfy you. Nothing. But notice, uh, notice Solomon's little caveat at the end of what he said. Under the sun. Nothing is gonna satisfy you under the sun. But Solomon, what about outside the sun? What about over the sun? What about outside of creation? Salt Company, this is where the answer lies. C.S. Lewis, who was the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series and was also a Christian, he once wrote this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Each one of you has a God-sized and a God-shaped hole in your heart that can only be satisfied if we accept God's offer of himself. All right, so we got the answer to that first question. Now, how do we accept his offer? All right, so let's read verses six and seven. It says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. So how do we accept God's offer? Does it say be better or try harder or get it together or make sure that your good things outweigh your bad things? No, it says seek. Call out to God. Seek. Call out to God. And so I, I think... Um, 
I think it would be easier for us to think here when we see the word seek that uh, we are actually the ones that make the first move towards God. But that's not true. God actually was the one that made the invitation first. And so he is inviting us to seek him. I want you to notice something else. There's also an urgency to this seeking. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. So this is what's not happening here. God isn't trying to play hide and seek. He's not like dangling relationship and satisfaction out in front of our noses. And right as we reach out to grab it, he yanks it away. He's not trying to be elusive. What he's trying to say, what he is saying, is that each one of us has been given a currency called time. And in the United States, that currency averages out to like a lifespan of like 75 years if you're lucky. 75 years, maybe, and then an eternity somewhere else. And what the Bible teaches is that what happens in those 75 years or however long we have determines where we spend that eternity. And so the point I'm trying to make, guys, none of you know how long your life is gonna last. None of you know if you're gonna make it home tonight. I mean, that's kind of a morbid thought, but can you guarantee me that you'll make it home tonight alive? No, think about this too. Nobody ever wakes up in the morning and, and says, oh yeah, this is the day that I die. Nobody ever anticipates that that day is going to be the day that, they're di- that they die. So the point I'm trying to make is this. You don't know when that's gonna happen. And so there's an urgency to seek God. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Seek God. So we seek him. And the second thing we see there, we also repent. So I kind of thought of a fun way to think about this. So if you are a private in the United States military and you receive the command to halt, about turn, quick march, what you would immediately do is you would stop, you would turn 180 degrees, and you would march in the other direction. You would turn your back on the way you were going and you would march in the completely opposite direction. And this is what repentance is like. So we as humans instinctively, we we walk far from God because of our sinful nature. And God says, turn around, face me, walk toward me. That's what repentance is. We turn from something to something. We turn from our sin and we turn to God. And as I was thinking about repentance, I I couldn't help but think that some of you here tonight probably have a bad view of Christianity because the only thing you've heard about it is what we need to turn from. You can't do this. You have to stop doing that. You can't have this. Stop doing this. And so for you, Christianity, Christianity just seems like a bunch of boring rule keeping. It seems like God is a cosmic killjoy that doesn't want you to have any fun in life. And that just simply like couldn't be farther from the truth. Yes, God wants us to turn from our sin, but what you need to hear tonight is that God wants us to turn towards something better, himself. That's the full picture of repentance, turning from something, turning to something better. And so God isn't a cosmic killjoy. He's kind, he's generous, and he's present. So we have God's offer. We know how to accept his offer. Now, why the heck should we? So just to remind you guys, nothing in creation, nothing under the sun, as Solomon says, will satisfy you. Just ask Solomon, ask Jim Carrey, ask Tom Brady. That's one reason. 
But there's a second reason. And that reason is this, God knows better than you do. Have you guys ever thought about sin this way? Your sin is actually putting yourself at the center of the universe. Every single time we sin, what we're actually saying is, God, I know better than you do. God, I make better decisions than you make. God, my ways are higher than your ways. That's what we say when we sin. This is what verse eight and nine say. For my thoughts, this is God talking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have the arrogance to say, God, I know better than you do. And he's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. My ways are higher than your ways. And um, I want you guys to know a, a fancy theological word to describe this, omnipotence, omnipotence. So God himself is omnipotent, meaning that he has unlimited power. That means he sees everything and that means he knows absolutely everything. How many of you remember learning about the water cycle in elementary school? Show of hands. You guys remember learning about the water cycle? Cool. Well, God actually uses uh, an illustration that might sound familiar, familiar to a lot of you then. In verse 10, it says this, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven. So we got the condensation that, make the, that made the rain and the, and the snow and the clouds, and then it falls from heaven. That's precipitation. And it does not return there. There's evaporation without saturating the earth. There's infiltration and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will also accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. So we have a God who is the designer and creator of something powerful like the water cycle. It's like when God created that, he's like, all right, this is how this is gonna be done. Simple as that, like water cycle created. And this is actually how it is with all of the other like scientific mechanisms that we see happening on earth. God designed it, he created it, and he sustains it. But there is a fundamental difference between like sciences like the water cycle and us human beings. God tells the water cycle to do its thing and it does it. God tells the, uh, the sun to shine, he tells the rocks to erode, he tells the plants to photosynthesize, he tells the, the rivers to flow this way, and he tells animals to populate the earth and they do it without hesitation. But then he looks at us and says, man, human beings love and obey me. And we cross our arms and pout like a little child and say, no. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? Alexander Graham Bell, uh, maybe you know who he is. He invented and patented the first working telephone. And um, therefore, we can say Bell was the creator and owner of the telephone, and this means that he put its parts together. That means he knows how those parts fit together best, and therefore he's the one that gets to say how they get to work together. And God is the, that, that's how our relationship with God should be too. He's the creator, he's the owner, he designed us and put us together. Therefore, he alone knows how we work best and flourish. He knows how we're wired and he knows what will truly satisfy you. And therefore, it's loving for him to command that we turn from our sin 
and turn toward him. It's, it's loving for him to get angry at anything that gets in the way of that, especially our sin. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He sees everything and he knows absolutely everything. Don't you want to accept the offer of a God like this? And guys, as if all that isn't enough, there is one more, much more important reason that we should accept God's offer. And this one might be a little bit more tricky to see in our passage, but it's in there. The last and most important reason we should accept God's offer is because he sent Jesus. Man, this last sentence of verse one says, come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Guys, that one line in verse one should leave us in tears. If you're a Christian in here, you know that your salvation did not come without a cost, a great cost. We are sinners, and we are sinners that hurt creation, hurt each other, hurt God, and contribute to the brokenness of the world. And we deserve to come before a judge and be put on trial for our betrayal and rebellion. That's just what we deserve. And for every single person in this room, I promise you, Scripture says you will go before that judge someday. And so, guys, I care that your satisfaction is in God. Like that, after all, that is what we're talking about tonight. But I care far more about a much more important question that you must answer in your life is who before that judge will pay the penalty for my sin? Who's going to pay the penalty of my sin? Will it be you or will it be the one who says, I will bring the cost of salvation upon myself? And guys, if you, would, if you would just close your eyes and try to envision this, um, these were the costs that Jesus took upon himself so that we could come to God without cost. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was flogged with a whip that had shards of glass and metal, and when they sank it into his back and the torturer pulled, it ripped his back to shreds. He then had to get up from that and carry the very instrument that he would be further tortured upon, a massive wooden cross that he would have to carry for close to a mile. He was then stripped naked. He then had steel pegs driven through his wrists and ankles as he was nailed to the cross, and on that cross, he had to move up and down and place pressure on those pegs through his wrists and ankles just to breathe, probably tearing open his back from earlier. And all the while, Jesus continued to be mocked and spit upon, and his closest friends were nowhere to be found. All of that, and it's not even the worst thing that Jesus had to go through. On the cross, he took our sin upon himself. He became our sin, and he was crushed by God's wrath that should have been poured out on us. We can be satisfied because God satisfied his wrath on Jesus. So come without cost? 
That's a massive cost, God. Only Jesus was the one who paid it so that we wouldn't have to. Doesn't that make you want to know Jesus? Doesn't that make you want to trust him and follow him and follow his commands and without hesitation be like, yep, I'm in. I want that. I want Jesus. God gave his life for you, Salt Company. And we can be satisfied because ultimately God satisfied his wrath on his own son. And this should change everything. So let's, let's finish out this passage. Verses 12 and 13. Because of all that, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. And instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. Knowing Jesus changes everything. If you guys notice in there, it mentions some plants. What is the purpose of a thorn bush or a briar? Stay away. Living creatures, stay away. I, I know that there are some nasty like Iowa thistles out there. I just picked a few the other day as we were cleaning up the church parking lot. There are some nasty Iowa thistles out there that you don't want to go anywhere near. And our sin acted as a thistle between us and God. God is holy. We are not. And so we couldn't go anywhere near him. But in Christ, this thistle has now become a pleasant-smelling flowering plant. We can now come near to God, and that is ultimately what brings us satisfaction. And these verses actually color in specifically what that satisfaction looks like. So if you're taking notes, the first one is joy. Joy. To one degree or another, all of you are emotional people. And because you're emotional people in a broken world, your emotions probably rise and fall and ebb and flow and they might um, intensify and dull. But something that we can have in Christ is an ever-present joy. It's different from happiness. Happiness comes and goes based on circumstances. Joy does not. The Bible calls like the action to joy, rejoicing. Rejoicing isn't a feeling, it's a verb. It's something we get up and do. If we're in Christ, we're actually commanded to rejoice, to praise God and be thankful to him for all that he's done for us, no matter what is happening in our lives on earth. So that's the first thing, joy. Second one is peace, and peace is kind of similar to joy. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. So even when it makes no sense because of the circumstances, God can provide this kind of peace to you that means we are confident and sure of who he is, and that makes us calm and gentle and assured people. All right, so we have joy and peace, and then the last one, purpose. So key in on this one word from verse 13. This will stand as a monument before the Lord. So the first thing I think of when I think of monument is Washington, D.C., and I've been there a couple times. All of you should go visit. It's awesome. So you're coming in on Interstate 395. You look to the left, and then there's just this massive building. It's called the Pentagon. I don't know if you've heard of it. And as, as you're driving by it, it's like, oh, my gosh, like what, what like matters of national security and what like secrets are being talked about here? Okay, I don't have time to think about that because off in the distance to the north, I see a little peak of the White House. Okay, I can't dwell on that too long because there's the, the Lincoln Memorial, there's the Jefferson Memorial, there's the, the memorial to FDR. 
And then you go park your car. Uh, it's called the National Mall. And you can walk up to these different monuments to World War II, the Vietnam War, um, a monument to Martin Luther King Jr. All of these monuments represent history-shaping people and history-shaping events. And this passage is saying that we have the same but even more important purpose as these monuments. We are to be monuments for the most important person and the most important history-shaping event in human history, which is Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We are to be monuments for the risen Jesus Christ. Monuments tell a story, and we are to be mobile monuments that have now been given the purpose of telling the world about who Jesus is and what he did. And so we don't wait for people to come and see us like the monuments in Washington, D.C. We go and tell as monuments for Jesus Christ. But guys, to have this joy and this peace and this purpose, many of you need to start back at the beginning, start back at square one. You need to accept God and his offer of salvation in himself through Christ. So, guys, I got a little thing here. So these two, look pretty, these two glasses of water look pretty similar, don't they? Like you probably can't tell a difference between the two from where you're sitting. But if I actually asked you to come up, take off the lid and do a little taste test, you would, see very, you would taste very quickly that these two are very different. In my left hand is fresh drinking water and in my right hand is salt water. And right now, some of you have a choice. You have a choice between being satisfied with the only one who can truly quench your thirst or something else that will leave a horrible taste in your mouth one day and will leave you thirsty. Guys, in John 4, Jesus has this interaction with this woman who has been trying to find her satisfaction in marriage after marriage after marriage, kind of like I was doing in relationship after relationship. And he says to her, woman, if you keep drinking from that well of satisfaction, you will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water I give them will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So Salt Company, I just, have, I just want to leave you with just one question. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want a life of frustration and hurt, misery, dissatisfaction and an unquenchable thirst? Or do you want a life of joy and peace and purpose and satisfaction in knowing God? Decision is yours. Let's pray, guys. God, thank you for all my friends who are here tonight. Thank you that we can open your word, that we can know you personally. Man, God, I'm so thankful that the search is over, that God, tonight can be the day of salvation. Tonight can be the time for us to cross from death to life, to move from dissatisfied to satisfied in you, God, and who you are. 
And so, Lord, I pray for the person tonight who's far from you. They know who they are. I pray that they take a step towards Jesus tonight, Lord. I pray that they give their life to you for the very first time, that they realize that they are going to be striving and striving and striving and trying all of these different places for satisfaction, and it will elude them. Only you are truly satisfying, God. I do want to say, God, that you are a good father that gives good gifts to his children, and so we don't want to completely get rid of all of the good things in our life, God. That's not what you want us to do, but you do want us to repent of the way that we look for satisfaction, true and lasting and ultimate satisfaction in those things. Everything in creation is supposed to point to a creator. And so Jesus, thank you for your mercy and for going to the cross to make that abundantly clear to us that we have a God who loves us, that took our place, who suffered greatly so that we wouldn't have to. We love you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.